I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. Well, hey there, everyone. I'm Dave Yost, and welcome to OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Now, I know that I haven't gotten a new episode out for the last couple weeks, and I do apologize for that. Unfortunately, things have been very busy for me outside of podcasting this month, and I've had to prioritize those things ahead of getting a new show out. I hate having to miss my weekly deadline, but let me assure you, this was unavoidable. Anyway, I'm back, and I should be entirely back on schedule for the foreseeable future. You may need to cut me some slack every once in a while on getting an episode out maybe a day or two late, but for the most part, you should be getting a, a new episode every week. Uh, with apologies out of the way... Let's buckle up and go full speed ahead into uh, our episode this week. We are back to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and we are rounding out Chapter 11 of Book 1, uh, which also happens to be the last chapter of Book 1. Now, where we left off, Smith was running us through the nature of, the, of rent of the land as a component in the economy. Uh, as Smith went through this topic, he noted that metals mined from the land are, are not priced in the same way as most other commodities. And this begins the section of the chapter that is known as Smith's Digression on Silver. Of course, in the way that only Adam Smith can do, he goes on a slight tangent into the details of the market of, for silver that lasts for almost 100 pages of the book. By this point, if you've been listening to the previous Wealth of Nations episodes, I'm sure that none of you are surprised by this, but if you ever needed to summarize Adam Smith's writing style into a single sentence, 
it would be to say that he himself refers to a section that is approximately one-tenth of the length of his entire book as a digression. I'm just not sure that anyone besides Adam Smith could get away with that. So, let's get into it. Naturally, when it comes to an, an Adam Smith digression, we can't just jump right into the topic at hand. He wants to set it up for us. Smith starts by circling back into the market for corn, which, as I pointed out last time, he, he, he's actually talking about wheat. Uh, but wheat is what Smith considers to be the fundamental food source of which all other food sources are to be compared. And, of course, food is the key commodity against which everything else is compared. As such, when the supply of food increases, so too does the demand for every other good that isn't food. And this makes sense in both the short run and the long run. As the supply of food in, in an area increases, the short-run demand for food stays pretty much the same, since there's really only so much food that a person needs to sustain themselves. This dynamic will cause the price for food to drop, thus freeing up disposable income across all people in that area that they will then spend on things that aren't food. Think about it this way. If you have an incredibly limited budget, so limited that you had to entirely prioritize every purchase made, the first thing on your list of priorities is going to be food. Without food, you'll starve to death and none of your other purchases will matter. And yes, even the kids today would prioritize things the same way. Without food, your high-speed internet and cell phone wouldn't do you much good. So let's say that, at least at first, your limited budget only allows you exactly enough to cover your food expenses for the month. You're not even buying anything fancy, just the basic staples of life, you know, fruit, vegetables, grains, and meat. You can feed yourself, but you don't have a penny more for anything else. But you live in a country that's experiencing the beginnings of a boom in the agricultural sector. So as each month passes, there's more food available in your local markets. And because food is typically perishable, the people selling it there have to respond to this increase in supply by decreasing the price to try to get you to buy more. With the new lower price, you can now afford to buy more food beyond just what it would take to keep you from starving to death. As the agricultural boom continues, prices continue to drop, and pretty soon your same monthly budget can afford top-of-the-line, luxurious food, and more of it. But eventually you're going to hit a point at which you can't possibly imagine buying more food or buying even a higher quality of food. But as the supply continues to go up, the price continues to go down, and eventually you're going to be left with enough extra money each month that you can spend it on things that aren't food, or things that aren't even necessary for your basic survival. You can now buy luxuries. 
of course, because everyone else is experiencing the same drop in food prices, they can now afford luxuries as well. And the demand for non-food luxuries skyrockets, sending the price of those items up as well. Now, if this all seems a bit elementary to you, remember that this is Smith slowly building up steam to a conclusion. Here, what he wants to hammer home is the fact that food is the foundation of any economy. No other good or commodity will have any kind of viable market until the supply of food is such that it drives the price of food to a level which allows for people to purchase anything below the number one slot on their list of priorities. It's why agrarian economies are the first phase of economic development. Industrialization simply isn't a viable option if you can't yet feed your population. This holds true in the long run as well. Increases in the food supply, which lead to a decrease in the price of food, will directly impact an eventual increase in the population, as it's now affordable for people to have more children. With this increase in population, the total pool of demand for goods will eventually increase, because there will be more people to demand those goods. If the supply of non-food goods remains about the same, or, or increases, but increases less than the rate of the population growth, the demand for those goods will exceed the supply, and their price will go up. But there's an exception. And if you've guessed that it's silver, based on the title of the section of this book, partial credit. It's actually all goods that fall into the same category as silver, which, at least in Smith's day, were mostly talking about the various metals. Now, this exception absolutely extends beyond just the market for metals. Smith is sing uh, singling them out uh, to use as an example, but what we're really talking about here is any good that has two key traits durability and transportability. Keeping in mind the simple economic truism that a good, any good, is only as valuable as your ability to sell it. Let's think about the market for something like apples. You run an apple orchard in a rural location in 18th century England. Now, when you start growing, you're the only apple game in town, so the price of your apples is very high. But, as you expand, given your record profits from such a high price for your apples, the supply goes up, but the local population can only eat so many apples. So your price is going to, to have to start to go down. Unless, of course, you can expand your market to include more customers. How do you do this? Well, you try to sell your apples not just in your local village, but to some of the surrounding villages as well. That bumps up the total number of consumers and lets you increase the price again. And as you continue to expand, you also continue to expand the radius of markets that you sell to. But there's a problem. You're selling apples, 
And as you widen your scope geographically, you're going to hit an upward limit of how far away you can sell your apples because over a long enough period of time, they're going to start to rot and nobody wants to buy rotten apples. This gets to the issue of durability. Apples, as well as most other foods, are not durable goods. They have a shelf life. So if you're going to sell them, you need to get them to a market where they can be sold before they start to go bad. If, in your capacity as our 18th century apple farmer, you wanted to try to expand your sales radius to, say, China, you're going to fail. Because the time it takes for them to get there is far longer than it would take for the apples to rot. But again, durability isn't the whole story. Because now let's imagine that you're not an apple farmer, that you are a stone miner. Again, still in the 18th century, still in England. Well, stone is definitely durable. It's never going to rot or go bad on you. But there's another problem, which leads us to a similar upward limit on your ability to sell your stone. And that, that is that while you'd like to sell it far and wide, the cost of and the ability to transport huge slabs of stone makes that dream more than a little impractical. And this is our other key factor. Your stone might be in demand as far away as China, but to get it there would increase your expenses to such a point that while there is a demand for it, there wouldn't be effective demand for it at that price. Knowing this, Smith now wants to steer us to the general vicinity of the point. Is there a product that is both highly durable and easily transportable, or at least easily transportable relative to its price? And the answer, of course, is yes. Silver and the other precious metals are durable, transportable, and generally in high demand everywhere across the globe. Smith writes, quote, The value of a freestone quarry, for example, will necessarily increase with the increasing improvement and population of the country round about it, especially if it should be the only in the neighborhood. But the value of a silver mine even though there should not be another within a thousand miles of it, will not necessarily increase with the improvement of the country in which it is situated. The market for the produce of a freestone quarry can seldom extend more than a few miles round about it, and the demand must generally be in proportion to the improvement and population of that small district. But the market for the produce of a silver mine may extend over the whole known world, unless the world in general, therefore, be advancing in improvement in population, the demand for silver might not be at all increased by the improvement even of a large country in the neighborhood of the mine. Even though the world in general were improving, yet if in the course of its improvement new mines should be discovered much more fertile than any which had been known before, though the demand for silver would necessarily increase, yet the supply might increase in so much a greater proportion 
that the real price of that metal might gradually fall. That is, any given quantity, a pound weight of it, for example, might gradually purchase or command a smaller and a smaller quantity of labor, or exchange for a smaller and smaller quantity of corn, the principal part of the subsistence of the labor. The great market for silver is the commercial and civilized part of the world. And as we've touched on last time, this confluence of factors makes the market for precious metals like silver global rather than local. The global markets operate differently than local markets. This difference is why we have a 100-page digression on the subject. With this established, Smith points out that there are three variations in the value of silver. One quick digression of my own, Smith is focused on silver here, mainly because it's the precious metal that he has the most data on. While he's going to talk about silver specifically, what he has to say largely applies to any precious metal, and for that matter, any commodity that is both highly durable and easily transportable. See, that took less than a minute. Now that is a digression. So the three variations in the price of silver. These might seem pretty basic, but again, he's building to a point. Smith says that the price of silver will change if, one, demand for silver increases without an equal increase in supply, thus increasing the price. Two, the supply of silver increases without an equal increase in demand, thus driving the price down. Or three, the supply of silver increases or decreases in exact proportion to the increase or in decrease in demand, thus keeping the price pretty much exactly the same. Again, nothing mind-blowing here. But Smith is setting the stage by reminding us of the relative nature of price. As, as, as we follow his logic, it's important to remember that when assessing value or, or predicting future value, we can't ever look at just one variable. Everything in economics is relative to everything else. If the supply of something increases, you might start to predict that the price will go down. But if you don't also look at the likely future demand for that thing, you won't ever really be able to predict what's going to happen. Supply goes up, demand goes up even more, then, despite the increased supply, price will still increase. With that being said, Smith now takes us through a lengthy history of the price of silver in England or at least as best as he can establish from the historical records that he has access to. As we've talked about before, he often has to use some interesting and elaborate methods to determine the likely value of silver from several centuries earlier. But this is something that economists to this day still often have to do. Unfortunately, the data that we need doesn't always exist, at least not in the precise form that we want it to. And so we have to get a little creative in how we determine exactly what it is we're looking for. Anyway, I will spare you most of the granular details concerning the history of silver in England. It is 
thorough. Instead, I'll just highlight a few points that I think are worth noting. The first is the role of stability and security in the price of goods. Smith says, quote, The increase of security would naturally increase industry and improvement, and the demand for the precious metals, as well as for every other luxury and ornament, would naturally increase with the increase of riches. A greater annual produce would require a greater quantity of coin to circulate it, and a greater number of rich people would require a greater quantity of plate and other ornaments of silver. The second is that, while combing through some some genuinely ancient records of the price of goods and the laws that occasionally governed those prices, Smith notes three key issues that he ran into when when trying to get exact figures. Uh, While these issues are specifically in reference to looking at ancient records, Personally, I think that they still apply to looking at really any economic data, uh, even stuff from our modern era. Uh, Smith notes that he would often run into problems with, uh, in his research with people confusing uh, conversion price with market price, a topic that we spent most of a previous chapter talking about. He also calls out what, uh, what he refers to as slovenly transcription as being far too common. And in that, he's simply talking about people actually writing down the the laws that were being dictated in, in ancient times, just not doing a very good job of, of accurately writing down what was discussed. And, and while he is talking about ancient rec- record keepers there, I think that most, if not all, of the modern media outlets could be accused of similar slovenly coverage of economic issues. As I often go on about in this podcast, there's no value in in simplifying a topic which is, by its very nature, complicated, just to make it easier to turn into a slogan or a simple pro-anti-argument. Complicated things need to be allowed to be complicated, and they need to be absorbed by the public in all of their complexities. Making them easier to understand is certainly valuable, but to do so at the cost of not acknowledging their full scope is doing the public a real disservice. Finally, and this is another one that uh, that I see too often these days, is uh, the tendency of people to place too much emphasis on outliers. Smith notes that far too many of the detailed records that he came across were likely discussing abnormally high or low prices in the market for silver. And that kind of focus can distort the picture from what the actual norm is. So getting back to the the relative pricing, as I said before, we, we have to always remember that when the price of anything goes up or down, you have to look at the whole picture and see what what it is really uh, going up or down in comparison to and if there might be some other reason that that's happening. Smith says, quote, It is not, however, so much for the low price of corn as from that 
of some other parts of the rude produce of the land that the most judicious writers have inferred the great value of silver in these very ancient times. Corn, it has been said, being a sort of manufacture, was, in those rude ages, much dearer in proportion than the greater part of other commodities. It is meant, I suppose, that the greater part of unmanufactured commodities, such as cattle, poultry, game of all kinds, etc., that in those times of poverty and barbarism, these were proportionably much cheaper than corn is undoubtedly true. But this cheapness was not the effect of the high value of silver, but of the low value of those commodities. It was not because silver would, in such times, purchase or represent a greater quantity of labor, but because such commodities would purchase or represent a much smaller quantity than in times of more opulence and improvement. Silver must certainly be cheaper in Spanish America than in Europe, in the country where it is produced than in the country where it is brought, at the expense of a long carriage both by land and by sea, of a freight and an insurance. One and twenty pence halfpenny sterling, however, we are told by Yulo, was not many years ago at Buenos Aires the price of an ox, chosen from a herd of three or four hundred. Sixteen shillings sterling, we are told by Mr. Byron, was the price of a good horse in the capital of Chile. In a country naturally fertile, but of which the far greater part is altogether uncultivated, cattle, poultry, game of all kinds, etc., as they can be acquired with a very small quantity of labor, so they will purchase or command but a very small quantity. The low money price for which they may be sold is no proof of the real value of silver, uh, is there very high, but that the real value of those commodities is very low. Labor, it must always be remembered, and not any particular commodity or set of commodities, is the real measure of both the of the value both of silver and of all other commodities. Now going back to Smith's essential idea, while labor may be the true marker of value, it's important to note that within the idea of relative pricing, anything can be the benchmark for valuation. Smith points out that in areas or countries where the land is not cultivated, the price for something as basic as, as wheat may be very high, uh, because the supply, of course, is very low, uh, as there aren't farms there growing it. But the price for cattle, which freely roam on uncultivated land, will likely be low, and given those conditions, the price of cattle will be a better guide to the relative value of everything else. While that's true under those specific conditions, throughout the wealth of nations, Smith typically will use the price of wheat as his core comparison, because in most areas where the land is cultivated, the value of it compared to the labor that growing it requires scarcely varies. Uh, as he says, quote, In every state of society, in every stage of improvement, corn is the production of human industry. But the average produce of every sort of industry is always suited more or less exactly 
to the average consumption, the average supply to the average demand. In every different stage of improvement, besides the raising of equal quantities of corn in the same soil and climate, will, at an average, require nearly equal quantities of labor, or what comes to the same thing, the price of nearly equal quantities. The continual increase of the productive powers of labor in an improving state of cultivation being more or less counterbalanced by the continually increasing price of cattle, the principal instrument of agriculture. Upon all these accounts, therefore, we may rest assured that equal quantities of corn will, in every state of society, in every stage of improvement, more nearly represent or be equivalent to equal quantities of labor than equal quantities of any other part of the rude produce of the land. Corn, accordingly, it has already been observed, is in all the different stages of wealth and improvement a more accurate measure of value than any other commodity or set of commodities. In all those different stages, therefore, we can judge better of the real value of silver by comparing it with corn than by comparing it with any other commodity or set of commodities. Corn, besides, or whatever else is the common and favorite vegetable food of the people, constitutes in every civilized country the principal part of the subsistence of the laborer. In consequence of the extension of agriculture, the land of every country produces a much greater quantity of vegetable than of animal food, and the laborer everywhere lives chiefly upon the wholesome food that is the cheapest and the most abundant. Butcher's meat, except in the most thriving countries, or where labor is most highly rewarded, makes but an insignificant part of his subsistence. Poultry makes a still smaller part of it, and game no part of it. In France, and even in Scotland, where labor is somewhat better rewarded, uh, than in France, the laboring poor seldom eat butcher's meat, except upon holidays and other extraordinary occasions. The money price of labor, therefore, depends much more upon the average money price of corn, the subsistence of the laborer, than upon that of butcher's meat or of any part of the rude produce of the land. The real value of gold and silver, therefore, the real quantity of labor which they can purchase or command, depends much more upon the quantity of corn which they can purchase or command than upon that of butcher's meat or any other part of the rude produce of the land. Whew, that's a lot of rude produces of the land, but that's the way Smith writes. So with all of this established, it's, it's now time for Smith to start blowing our minds with some of those economic truths that may seem a little counterintuitive. The big one, he points out, is that precious metals, like gold and silver, tend to be dear, a uh, term he uses basically meaning of higher value, in rich countries than they are in poor countries. Now, the counterintuitive part of this is that richer countries tend to have a larger supply of precious metals than poorer countries. It's seemingly, anyway, what makes them richer countries. One would think that with more gold and silver circulating around, the price of those things would go down. But it doesn't. It goes up. The reason, of course, is that in poor countries, 
they're still struggling to provide the basic necessities of life, and therefore food is much more important to their economy and to their very survival than gold or silver. Smith says, quote, when we are in want of necessaries, we must part with all superfluities, of which the value, as it rises in times of opulence and prosperity, so it sinks in times of poverty and distress. It is otherwise with necessaries. Their real price, the quantity of labor which they can purchase or command, rises in times of poverty and distress, and sinks in times of opulence and prosperity which are always times of great abundance, for they could not otherwise be times of opulence and prosperity. Corn is a necessary. Silver is only a superfluity. Now, I know that I said that I'd spare you the, the full history of the price of precious metals, and trust me, I am. But there is a bit of the history that's important to understand for this chapter. In the briefest version that I can possibly muster, what's important to know is that in England and throughout most of Europe, the price of silver was high for centuries. But once the Americas were discovered by Europeans, and, and thus the gold and silver mines of the Americas were exploited, the supply of precious metals exploded globally, and the price crashed worldwide. Then, starting around the beginning of the 18th century, the price gradually started to tick up again. As the output of the American mines plateaued, thus slowing the increase in supply, and new markets, like the American colonies, expanded, thus increasing the global demand. That version should keep you guys up to speed for the rest of the episode. If, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you absolutely should read this chapter in its entirety. Again, Smith's coverage of, of the prices of silver, the variations in, in the laws regarding silver, uh, and um, the, the effect that the mines out of North and South America had on the global market. Again, it is very thorough. But for the rest of you, that's the Cliff Notes version. Now, as we talked about earlier, the durability of silver, gold, or really any metal, whether it's precious metal or not, tends to make their price stay fairly steady. And the effect that that durability uh, actually lasts far longer than you might think. Uh, Smith says here, quote, The durableness of metals is the foundation of this extraordinary steadiness of price. The corn, which was brought to the market last year, will be all or almost all consumed long before the end of this year. But some part of the iron, which was brought from the mine two or three hundred years ago, may still be in use, and perhaps some part of the gold, which was brought from it two or three thousand years ago. And I find that idea interesting, because when it comes to the pricing of metals, it's not just the durability of the commodity itself, the, 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 the raw gold, the raw silver, the raw iron, whatever. Uh, it's not just that, dur uh, that product's durability, which is having an impact on the price, but also the durability of 
whatever the product is that's made from that metal. When you buy something, you know, as simple as a pair of jeans, you know, denim is a pretty durable material. But depending on how rough you are on them, you're going to need to replace them somewhat regularly. But if we're talking about something made out of metal, like, let's say, a cast iron skillet, well, that can last long enough to be passed down to you know, a future generation. And so there isn't always that kind of re-upping of demand for, for replacement products. And it's with that long-term durability in mind that Smith takes us into the idea that thanks to the boom in supply from the American mines, the relative value of silver plummeted throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. He does make an interesting observation in that while the price of silver dropped relative to the price of gold, both metals lost value as both were being mined in large quantities during that period. In fact, again emphasizing the importance of relative value, while the drop in the price of silver was considered more severe because silver was worth less than gold, Smith finds it important to point out that during this period, gold actually dropped far closer to its lowest possible value than silver did. He says here, quote, A commodity may be said to be dear or cheap, not only according to the absolute greatness or smallness of its usual price, but according as that price is more or less above the lowest for which it is possible to bring it to market for any considerable time together. This lowest price is that which barely replaces, with a moderate profit, the stock which must be employed in bringing the commodity thither. It is the price which affords nothing to the landlord, of which rent makes not any component part, but which resolves itself altogether into wages and profit. Smith then gets into ideas about how to stimulate further mining after the price of uh, the commodity has dropped below the point where it is no longer profitable to do so. Uh, the problem was largely, in Smith's time, the result of taxes laid upon the importation uh, of new precious metals. And Smith felt that as the supply of newly mined metals dropped and the price dropped, the tax should drop as well. Now again, this, this might seem a little odd, but it does make sense because it's the added cost of the tax when you get to this point in the supply and demand curve that is weighting the equation to a point that is preventing the possibility of profitability. He says here, quote, though it is not very profitable that any tax, that any part of a tax which is not only imposed upon one of the most proper subjects of taxation, a mere luxury and superfluity, but which affords so very important a revenue as the tax upon silver, uh, will ever be given up as long as it is possible to pay it. Yet the same impossibility of paying it, which in 1736 made it necessary to reduce it from one-fifth to one-tenth, may in time make it necessary to reduce it still further, in the same manner as it was made necessary to reduce the tax upon gold to one-twentieth. 
that the silver mines of Spanish America, like all other mines, become gradually more expensive in the working, on account of the greater depths at which it is necessary to carry out the works, and of the greater expense of drawing out the water and of supplying them with fresh air at those depths is acknowledged by everybody who has inquired into the state of those mines. These causes, which are equivalent to a growing scarcity of silver, for a commodity may be said to grow scarcer when it becomes more difficult and expensive to collect, a certain quantity of it, must in time produce one or other of the three following events. The increase of the expense must either first be compensated altogether by a proportionate increase in the price of the metal, or secondly it must be compensated altogether by a proportionate diminution of the tax upon silver, or thirdly it must be compensated partly by the one and partly by the other of those two expedients. This third event is very possible, as gold rose in its price in proportion to silver, notwithstanding a great diminution of the tax upon gold. So silver might rise in its price in proportion to the labor and commodities, notwithstanding an equal diminution of the tax upon silver. This takes us into the next phase of Smith's analysis, where he believes that there's a reason to believe that even with the increase of supply leveling off, that the value of silver will continue to decrease in years to come. Of course, we can't just dive into that assertion and have him explain it in, in full, because Smith needs to do his usual bit of setting the table for us in the most drawn-out way possible. But as usual, in doing his elaborate wind-up, he does hit on some ideas that are pretty important. So let's indulge him. Trust me. This will all tie together at the end. Smith starts here by talking about rude produce. Rude produce is basically things that can be sold as a product, but are not really manufactured. Now, if I've lost you on that, let me get into the three types of road pr pr rude produce that Smith lays out, and this should make a bit more sense. The first sort of rude produce is the kind that is largely outside the power of human industry to multiply. What this means is that the product primarily comes from nature, which itself produces it in a limited supply, and it's perishable, so there's no opportunity for accumulation of the product. Now again, if I've lost you, the example Smith gives here is wild game. Wild game is something that, in order for it to be wild game, can't really be the product of husbandry or any sort of farming process. It's wild. As such, the supply of wild game is almost entirely out of the control of human beings. Now, in a rude state of nature, wild game is just another thing to hunt. But as society progresses and improves, and the overall wealth of society increases, the effective demand for things like wild game goes up. As people's basic needs are met, they tend to start wanting things that exist outside of their needs. People in Smith's day, and even people today, 
don't hunt wild game because they need it in order to survive. We have enough domesticated animals to feed ourselves comfortably. Rather, they hunt it because the act of doing so is a unique enjoyment. So again, the progress of improvement drives up the demand for these kinds of things, but the supply can't be dramatically increased to meet that demand. So the value of this rude produce goes up. And with the value going up, these kinds of products become the, the purview of the wealthy of society. This dynamic isn't even a modern concept uh, based, uh, you know, springing out of an industrialized society. Smith fi finds records from ancient Rome uh, as the empire rose to its greatest height and the general wealth of their society hit its highest point, uh, where hunting wild game became the preferred pastime of the elites. The second sort of rude produce is that which human industry can multiply in proportion to demand. What Smith is talking about here specifically are uh, wild plants that tend to get replaced by crops as agriculture takes over the land. Essentially, a, a process of improvement occurs in a society, uh, and agriculture takes over the use of arable land, and the supply of less common plant life goes down. And with that scarcity, demand for these wild plants goes up. This kind of thing also has connections to certain types of animals. Uh, Smith lays out the, the progress of pricing affecting the kinds of meats that are, are cultivated and available in society. Where he says, quote, The lands of no country, it is evident, can ever be completely cultivated and improved till once the price of every produce which human industry is obliged to raise upon them has got so high as to pay for the expense of complete improvement and cultivation. In order to do this, the price of each particular produce must be sufficient first to pay the rent of good corn land, as it is that which regulates the rent of the greater part of other cultivated land, and secondly, to pay the labor and expense of the farmer, as well as they are commonly paid upon good corn land, or, in other words, to replace what the ordinary profits of the stock which he employs about it. This rise in the price of each particular produce must evidently be uh, previous to the improvement and cultivation of the land which is destined for raising it. Gain is the end of all improvement, and nothing could deserve that name of which loss was to be the necessary consequence. But loss must be the necessary consequence of improving land for the sake of a produce of which the price could never uh, bring back the expense. If the complete improvement and cultivation of the country be, as it most certainly is, the greatest of all public advantages, this rise in the price of all those different sorts of rude produce, instead of being considered as a public calamity, ought to be regarded as the necessary forerunner and attendant of the greatest of all public advantages. This rise, too, in the nominal or money price of all those different sorts of rude produce has been the effect not of any degradation in the value of silver, but of the rise in their real price. 
they have become worth not only a greater quantity of silver, but a greater quantity of labor and subsistence than before, as it costs a greater quantity of labor and subsistence to bring them to market, so when they are brought thither, they represent or are equivalent to a greater quantity. The third sort of rude produce is that which is in the power of human industry to increase the supply of, but the methods that would be used to do that are uncertain and produce uh, irregular results. Smith elaborates on this by talking about the various laws and regulations put into place throughout England to ensure the supply of wool for, from sheep, and that while a surprising number of them were enacted, the results were often entirely out of control of those regulations. So, what does all this talk about rude produce have to do with the price of silver? Well, it comes down to the driving factor in the price of all three kinds of rude produce, and that factor actually seems to supersede supply and demand. In fact, that factor seems to directly affect both supply and demand in most cases. That factor is, as Smith puts it, the progress of improvement. The values of all three kinds of rude produce are only kicked into high gear by the increasing, increasing wealth that comes from a society improving to the point where all basic needs are met. And suddenly, those in the society can concern themselves with things beyond survival. And they can start demanding things beyond their basis needs. Now again, what does this have to do with silver? I'm almost there, I promise. It comes down to the fact that Smith points out that the presence of precious metals in a particular country actually has very little to do with those metals actually being mined in that country. He says, quote, The quantity of the precious metals which is to be found in any country is not limited by anything in its local situation, such as the fertility or barrenness of its own mines. Those metals frequently abound in countries which possess no mines. Their quantity in every particular country seems to depend upon two different circumstances. First, upon its power of purchasing, upon the state of its industry, upon the annual produce of its land and labor, in consequence of which it can afford to employ a greater or smaller quantity of labor and subsistence in bringing or purchasing such superfluities as gold and silver, either from its own mines or from those of other countries. And secondly, upon the fertility or barrenness of the mines which may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world with those metals. The quantity of those metals in the countries most remote from the mines must be more or less affected by this fertility or barrenness on account of the easy and cheap transportation of these metals, of their small bulk and great value. Their quantity in China and Indostan must have been more or less affected by the abundance of the mines of America. So far as their quantity in any particular country depends upon the former of those two circumstances, the 
power of purchasing, their real price, like that of all other luxuries and superfluities, is likely to rise with the wealth and improvement of the country and to fall with its poverty and depression. Countries which have a great quantity of labor and subsistence to spare can afford to purchase any particular quantity of those metals at the expense of a greater quantity of labor and subsistence than countries which have less to spare. What Smith is getting at here is that a country could have no natural sources of gold or silver within its borders, but if that country produces something that the rest of the world wants, that country will have no problem getting gold and silver in exchange for that product. Effectively, it's not the presence of gold and silver mines that makes a country wealthy or prosperous. It's the presence of a product or industry which is in high demand elsewhere. If you have something that people want, then you will eventually have gold. This idea comes very close to one put forward by another famous economist named David Ricardo. Ricardo literally wrote the book on a concept that we still struggle with to this day, which is called comparative advantage. Now, next week's topic episode is going to be all about comparative advantage, so I'll leave the details until then. But, given how similar the idea is to what Smith wrote about here, and given the fact that Ricardo wrote about it in 1817, I think it's safe to say that Smith said it first. And with this, Smith starts to wrap up his digression on silver. Now you may be saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure what this was all about. It seems like a scattershot of random points. Well, you're not wrong. But this is kind of Smith's thing. As I mentioned before, Smith likes to set the table and then tell you what it's all about. And this is the point in the chapter where he's going to tie all of these disparate ideas together into some fundamental economic truths. First of all, Smith wants to dispel the idea that the presence of precious metals is an indicator of wealth, at least on, on the level of uh, nations. Uh, he says, quote, The fertility or barrenness of the mines, however, which may, have, uh, may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world, is a circumstance which, it is evident, may have no sort of connection with the state of industry in a, in a particular country. It seems even to have no very necessary connection with that of the world in general. As arts and commerce, indeed, gradually spread themselves over a greater and greater part of the earth, the search for new mines being extended over a wider surface may have somewhat a better chance for being successful than when confined within narrow bounds. The discovery of new mines, however, as the old ones come to be gradually exhausted, is a matter of the greatest uncertainty, and such as no human skill or industry can ensure. All indications, it is acknowledged, are doubtful, and the actual discovery and successful working of a new mine 
can alone ascertain the reality of its of its value or even of its existence. In this search, there seem to be no certain limits either to the possible success or to the possible disappointment of human industry. In the course of a century or two, it is possible that new mines may be discovered, more fertile than any that have ever yet been known. And it is just, e just equally possible that the most fertile mine that uh, then known may be more barren than any that was wrought before the discovery of the mines of America. Whether the one or the other of these two events may happen to take place is of very little importance to the real wealth and prosperity of the world, to the real value of the annual produce of the land and labor of mankind, its nominal value, the quantity of gold and silver, by which this annual produce could be expressed or represented, would no doubt be very different. But its real value, the real quantity of labor which it could purchase or command, would be precisely the same. A shilling might, in the one case, represent no more labor than a penny does at present, and a penny in the other might represent as much as a shilling does now. But in the one case, he who had a shilling in his pocket would be no richer than he would uh, than he who has a penny at present, and in the other, he who had a penny would be just as rich as he who had a shilling now. The cheapness and abundance of gold and silver plate would be the sole advantage which the world could derive from the one event, and the dearness and scarcity of those trifle trifling superfluities the only inconveniency it could suffer from the other. Then, since industry is the true indicator of wealth, Smith wants to take that one step further and point out what the source of industry is. Industry uh, is, to, to Smith, the result of the economic system that is in place. He says, quote, the other, the other, from the fall of the feudal system and from the establishment of a government which afforded to industry the only encouragement which it requires, some tolerable security that it shall enjoy the fruits of its own labor. Now, with all this, we then need to conclude that you can't tie the current price of a precious metal like silver to anything besides the supply of that precious metal. The falling price of silver in, in Smith's day was often correlated with any number of, of other ideas, of, of exogenous factors, but it was really just the result of the increase in the supply that came from the mining in the Americas. And then of course we get to the fundamental truth of economics, that as supply goes up or down, there should always be a general equilibrium, and that while the price of some commodities may rise, this will have a counter effect that will cause the price of other commodities to fall. And if you're willing to substitute based on changes in price, these fluctuations will largely not affect you at all. He wraps it all up by saying, quote, it may be of some use to the public by affording an easy proof of the prosperous condition of the country. If the rise in the price of some sort of provisions be 
owing altogether to a fall in the value of silver. It is owing to a circumstance from which nothing can be inferred but the fertility of the American mines. The real wealth of the country, the annual produce of its land and labor, may, notwithstanding this circumstance, be either gradually declining, as in Portugal and Poland, or gradually advancing, as in most other parts of Europe. But if this rise in the price of some sorts of provisions be owing to a rise in the real value of the land which produces them, to its increased fertility, or in consequence of more extended improvements and good cultivation, to its having been rendered fit for producing corn, it is owing to a circumstance which indicates in the clearest manner the prosperous and advancing state of the country. The land constitutes by far the greatest and most important and most durable part of the wealth of every extensive country. It may surely be of some use, or at least it may be given some satisfaction to the public, to have so decisive a proof of the increasing value of by far the greatest and most important and the most durable part of its wealth. It may, too, be of some use to the public in regulating the pecuniary reward of some of its inferior servants. If this rise in the price of some sorts of provisions be owing to a fall in the value of silver, their pecuniary reward, provided it was not too large before, ought certainly to be augmented in recompense, will evidently be so much diminished. But if the this rise of price is owing to the increased value in consequence of the improved fertility of the land, which produces such provisions, it becomes a much nicer matter to judge either in what proportion any pecuniary reward ought to be augmented, or whether it ought to be augmented at all. The extension of the improvement in cultivation, as it, 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 as it necessarily raises more or less in proportion to the price of corn, that of every other sort of animal food, so it, is, so it as necessarily lowers that of, I believe, every sort of vegetable food. It raises the price of animal food because a great part of the land which produces it, being rendered fit for the producing of corn, must afford the landlord and the farmer the rent and the profit of corn land. It lowers the price of vegetable food because by increasing the fertility of the land, it increases its abundance. The improvements of agriculture, too, introduce many sorts of vegetable food, which, requiring less land and not more labor than corn, come much cheaper to the market. Such are potatoes and maize, or what is called Indian corn, the two most important improvements which the agriculture of Europe, perhaps which Europe itself, has received from the great extension of its commerce and navigation. Many sorts of vegetable food, besides which in the rude state of agriculture, are confined to the kitchen garden and raised only by the spade, come in its improved state to be introduced into common fields and to be raised by the plow, such as turnips, carrots, cabbages, etc., if, in the progress of improvement, therefore, the real price of one species of food necessarily rises, 
that of any uh, that of another as necessarily falls, and it becomes a matter of more nicety to judge how far the rise in the one may be compensated by the fall of the other. When the real price of butcher's meat has once got to its height, with which with which, with regard to every sort, except perhaps that of hog's flesh, it seems to have done through a great part of England uh, more than a century ago, any rise which can afterwards happen in that of any other sort of animal food cannot much affect the circumstances of the inferior ranks of the people. The circumstances of the poor through a great part of England cannot surely be so much distressed by the rise in the price of poultry, fish, wild fowl, or venison, as they must be relieved by the fall in that of potatoes. In the present season of scarcity, the high price of corn no doubt distresses the poor, but in times of moderate plenty, when corn is at its ordinary or average price, the natural rise in the price of any other sort of rude produce cannot much affect them. They suffer more, perhaps, by the artificial rise which has been occasioned by taxes in the price of some manufactured commodities, as of salt, soap, leather, candles, malt, beer, and ale, etc. But wait, there's more. Because that is the wrap-up of the digression of, on silver. Smith still wants to wrap up the chapter as well as the entirety of Book One of The Wealth of Nations. Everything that we've covered to this point has been building to some pretty big conclusions. So as we've seen, most of the economy and most of the wealth in this society comes down to improvement. And the natural effect of improvement in an economy is to diminish the price of things. Technological improvements in manufacturing mean that efficiency of production goes up, creating more of the product, and that it requires less labor to do so. Lower overhead costs and greater supply of output equals a lower price of the product. There is an exception to this in the event that while labor costs go down and productivity goes up, if the cost of the materials needed to manufacture the product go up, then price may stay mostly the same. Quote, the consideration of these circumstances may, perhaps, in some measure, explain to us why the real price, both of the coarse and of the fine manufacture, was so much higher in those ancient than in, those, uh, in the present times. It cost a greater quantity of labor to bring the goods to market. When they were brought thither, therefore, they must have purchased or exchanged exchanged for the price of a greater quantity. Now, as we're getting to the truly big ideas, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of direct quotes, kind of rapid fire here. Bear with me because uh, I think these quotes are, are pretty great and, and worth reading in their entirety. As it's been throughout book one, the big takeaway here is the interconnected nature of an economy and the line of cause and effect within it. Smith says here, quote, I shall conclude this very long chapter with observing that every improvement 
in the circumstances of, of the society tends either directly or indirectly to raise the real rent of the land, to increase the real wealth of the landlord, his power of purchasing the labor, or the produce of the labor of other people. The extension of improvement and cultivation tends to raise it directly. The landlord's share of the produce necessarily increases with the increase of the produce. That rise in the real price of those parts of the rude produce of the land, which is first the effect of extended improvement and cultivation, and afterwards the cause of their being still further extended, the rise in the price of cattle, for example, tends to to raise the rent of the land directly and is in a still greater proportion. The real value of the landlord's share, his real command of the labor of other people, not only rises with the real value of the produce, but the proportion of his share to the whole produce rises with it. That produce, after the rise in its real price, requires no more labor to collect it than before. A small proportion of it will, therefore, be sufficient to replace with the ordinary profit, the stock, which employs that labor. A greater proportion of it must, consequently, belong to the landlord. All these improvements in the productive powers of labor, which tend directly to reduce the real price of manufactures, tend indirectly to raise the real rent of land. The landlord exchanges that part of his rude produce, which is over and above his own consumption, or what comes to the same thing, the price of that part of it, for manufactured produce. Whatever reduces the real price of the latter raises that of the former. An equal quantity of the former becomes thereby equivalent to a greater quantity of the latter, and the landlord is enabled to purchase a greater quantity of the conveniences, ornaments, and luxuries which he has occasion for. Every increase in the real wealth of the society, every increase in the quantity of useful labor employed within it, tends indirectly to raise the real rent of land. A certain proportion of this labor naturally goes to the land. A greater number of men and cattle are employed in its cultivation. The produce increases with the increase of the stock, uh, which is thus employed in raising it, and the rent increases with the produce. Contrary circumstances, the neglect of cultivation and improvement, the fall in the real price of any part of the rude produce of the land, the rise in the real price of the manufacturers from the decay of, manu of manufacturing art and industry, the declension of the real wealth of society, all tend, on the other hand, to lower the real rent of the land, to reduce the real wealth of the landlord, to diminish his power for purchasing either the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. Smith then wants to point out that among the three main orders of the economy, rent, wages, and profits, what we've been talking about through all of book one, there are clear differences between the interests of each sector as it relates to the interests of society as a whole. On those who derive their money from rent, he says this, quote, The interest of the first of those three great orders, it appears from 
What has uh, been just now said is strictly and inseparably connected with the general interest of society. Whatever either promotes or obstructs the one necessarily promotes or obstructs the other. When the public deliberates concerning any regulation of commerce or police, the proprietors of land never can mislead it, with the view to promote the interest of their own particular order, at least if they have any tolerable knowledge of that interest. They are indeed too often defective in this tolerable knowledge. They are the only one of the three orders whose revenue costs them neither labor nor care, but comes to them, as it were, of its own accord, and independent of any plan or project of their own. That indolence, which is the natural effect of the ease and security of their situation, renders them too often not only ignorant but incapable of that application of mind which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequences of any public regulation. And then, of course, those who make their money through wages, of them he says, quote, The interest of the second order, that of those who live by wages, is as strictly connected with the interest of society as that of the first. The wages of the labor, it has already been shown, are never so high as when the demand for labor is continually rising, or when the quantity employed is every year increasing considerably. When this real wealth of the society becomes stationary, his wages are soon reduced to what is barely enough to enable him to bring up a family or to continue the race of laborers. When the society declines, they fall even below this. The order of proprietors may, perhaps, gain more by the prosperity of the society than that of laborers, but there is no order that suffers so cruelly from its decline. But though the interest of the laborer is strictly connected with that of the society, he is incapable either of comprehending that interest or of understanding its connection to his own. His condition leaves him, with, it leaves him no time to receive the necessary information, and his education and habits are commonly such as to render him unfit to judge even though he was fully informed. In the public deliberations, therefore, his voice is little heard and less regarded, except upon some particular occasions when his clamor is animated, set on, and supported by his employers, not for his, but for their own particular purposes. And finally, those who make their money from through profits, Smith says, his employers constitute the third order, that of those who live by profit. It is the stock that is employed for the sake of profit, which puts into motion the greater part of the useful labor of every society. The plans and product projects of the employers of stock regulate and direct all the most important operations of labor, and profit is the end proposed by all those plans and projects. But the rate of profit does not like rent and wages, rise with the prosperity and fall with the declension of the society. On the contrary, 
It is naturally low in rich and high in poor countries, and it is always highest in the countries which are going fastest to ruin. The interest of this third order, therefore, has not the same connection with the general interest of the society as that of the other two. Merchants and master manufacturers are, in this order, the two classes of people who commonly employ the largest capitals and who, by their wealth, draw to themselves the greatest share of the public consideration. As during their whole lives they have engaged in plans and projects, they have frequently more acuteness of understanding than the greater part of country gentlemen. As their thoughts, however, are commonly exercised rather about the interest of their own particular branch of business than about that of the society, their judgment, even when given uh, with the greatest candor, which it has not been upon every occasion, is much more to be depended upon with regard to the former of those two objects than with regard to the latter. Their superiority over the country gentlemen is not so much in their knowledge of the public interest as in their having a better knowledge of their own interest than he has of his. It is by this superior knowledge of their own interest that they have frequently imposed upon his generosity and persuaded him to give up both his own interest and that of the public from a very simple but honest conviction that their interest and not his, was the interest of the public. The interest of the dealers, however, respects different from, and even opposite to, that of the public. To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. To widen the market may frequently be agreeable uh, enough to the interest of the public, but to narrow the competition must always be against and can serve only to enable the dealers, by raising their profits above what they naturally would be, to levy for their own benefit an absurd tax upon the rest of their fellow citizens. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce, which comes from this order, ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, nor only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. And that should all seem pretty familiar by now. Smith has basically been making these points throughout the book. The whole of book one uh, should leave you with a few core realizations when it comes to the core pillars of the economy and how they relate to society at large. As we've covered in earlier episodes, the holders of stock, those that make their money through profits are absolutely critical to a robust economy and, uh, and an improving society. But as Smith shows us, they should never be blindly trusted because their interests and the interests of society 
do not line up. By making their profits, your life is made better. But they're in the game to make profits, not to make your life better. And that is a distinction that cannot be made often enough. The second big point is one we've hit on just about every chapter of the book so far, and that is the inherently interconnected nature of the economy. No one is an island when it comes to the economy. We are all absolutely tied together. And that is, yet again, a point that cannot be made often enough. Finally, Smith makes a clear distinction here at the end that doesn't always get made and isn't talked about nearly enough in our modern discourse. And that's the difference between what's good for business and what's good for society. The economic condition that would be best for business, as Smith points out, would be an absolute and impenetrable monopoly. And that would not produce the best results for society at large. The best results for society come from robust competition. The kind of competition that makes life hard for a business because they have to constantly try to keep up in order to not go out of business. Personally, I don't think that we view the world in those kind of terms often enough. We've spent so long highlighting the idea of individualism that we've forgotten that human beings, by their nature, are not individualistic creatures. We're social creatures. We have succeeded as a species because we innovate and because we function not as an individual, not even as a pack or a flock or what have you. We function as a society. Society allows us to do what most other animals can't, which is to take advantage of the division of labor, to each do our part, so that the society as a whole is more prosperous, and we all prosper from that. Now, I'm not denying individuality. We are all beautiful and unique snowflakes, and the purpose of an economy is not to turn us all into drones. But I distinguish between individuality and individualism, which I feel is a philosophy based on a myth that is objectively untrue. We've covered this in earlier episodes, and understanding the difference is something that I feel is critical to understanding Adam Smith, and frankly, to understanding economics. Smith isn't writing about the individual. As we've talked about in the uh, previous episode on objectivism, there's no way to create even the most basic of economic models with it, without at least two people involved in an exchange. Economics is inherently about us. And that wraps up book one of The Wealth of Nations. We have made it farther than I think most people expected. Uh, as we keep going, the scope of Smith's ideas is going to expand out taking what we learned in book one and projecting it across the, the macro view. So, something to look forward to. As always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, uh, come on out and join the Facebook group. Uh, you can search it by title uh, in Facebook or simply click on the link in the show notes for this episode. If you are not a Facebook user, you can always email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. 
all one word, no punctuation, and OK is spelled O-K-A-Y. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, if you're liking what you hear, please take a minute and throw me that five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks to all of you who have taken the time to drop a rating. And thanks to all of you who uh, took the extra time to write a review. Um, I like seeing what you guys think about the show, and I'm happy to make improvements if you think uh, uh, I can uh, I can make any. Uh, and with that, thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week with a topic episode. Uh, which I've already spoiled. Uh, it's going to be about comparative advantage. And then back in two weeks to crack open book two of The Wealth of Nations. Uh, we are now up to page 298 of the book, which puts us at about 29% of the way through it. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.